I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is Fifth and Mission. Today's episode is hosted by Sam Whiting. Here's Sam. Of all the uprisings and riots that happened in the tumultuous 1960s, there's only one I can think of that is still unsolved, and that's the epic of People's Park in Berkeley. Property is not a thing to keep men apart and at war, but rather a medium by which men can come together to play a people's part. And in the name of the people of the state of California, On May 15, 1969, a major riot erupted there that turned out to be the most violent of all the riots in Berkeley. It was the day the people tried to retake their park from the Berkeley police. After a rally in Sproul Plaza, they marched down Telegraph Avenue, only to be met by police and sheriff's deputies in full riot gear carrying shotguns. By the end of it, 40 people were injured. One man was shot and killed on the roof of a movie theater on Telegraph, and another man was blinded by bird shot. On the 50th anniversary, a new book's come out, The Battle for People's Park, Berkeley, 1969. We have with us today the publisher of the book, Steve Wasserman of Heyday Books, a Berkeley kid who was student body president at Berkeley High School at the time of People's Park. We also have Michael Delacour, the man who started it all. He organized the neighbors to go and take over a ramshackle parking lot and turn it into a park, People's Park, as they called it. We'll be back right after this. I'm Sam Whiting. We're here today with two veterans of the People's Park Uprising of May 1969. We have Michael Delacour, who uh, organized the first meeting that led to People's Park as we know it. And we have Steve Wasserman, the publisher of the new Heyday Books uh, publication, The Battle for People's Park, Berkeley, 1969. So let's start with the book. It's the size and weight of a high school yearbook or even a college yearbook. Why don't you, Steve, tell me a little bit about the publication? This is a book that I have wanted to publish for the past five decades. I came of age in Berkeley, my folks having moved there in 1963. I went to high school there. I was elected student body president the spring of 1969. My family and I helped to build the park, and I was in the streets defending the park. It was a very important event in my life, and for the last 50 years, I have often thought that this event was sadly neglected in the histories of the tumultuous 60s that have been written. And so the opportunity to at last bring to fruition and to realize a long-held project of honoring the sacrifice, one man was killed, another blinded, hundreds arrested, that marked those uh, difficult days, to bring that out, to restore to us a history which is in danger of being forgotten, was a high obligation of a publisher based in Berkeley over which it is my privilege to preside. And uh, Michael, why don't you explain to us what exactly is People's Park in the simplest terms? (laughs) 
What's People's Park? It's everybody's park. I, I think it's the best way of looking at it. Um, it, it. I think People's Park defines it really well. Anybody can come up and be part of it. Who built the park? Yeah, the people that showed up over – whoever shows up builds the park. At the time, it's several hundred people show up uh, when we started off on uh, April 20th. And every week it, it grew bigger and bigger amount of people. And uh, they just sort of decided how it would come down. It's true that we, in the leadership, a little bit supplied sod. We supplied tools, supplied uh, refreshments, alcohol, things like that. But basically the people sort of determined how it came down. And uh, physically, what is it and where is it? It's in Berkeley behind the 2400 block of Telegraph. It's like where Moe's, the Med were on Telegraph. It's behind that uh, 2.3 square uh, acre park. And uh, why don't you explain to us, either of you, what happened there 50 years ago, May 15th? Well, what you have to understand is that this block was ostensibly owned by the university. They had, in the previous year, 1968, demolished uh, a dozen or more homes, great wooden brown shingle affairs, typical Berkeley homes, claiming that they needed the land to uh, build on it. Uh, in the event, they never built on it, and the land was uh, left to uh, rot away and was used as a kind of ersatz parking lot. It was an eyesore. It was even a health hazard to kids in the neighborhood. And so Michael Delacour and other friends decided, hey, it's an eyesore. Let's make a park out of this, a green place. Uh, let's provide, as it were, a kind of lungs for the, for the congested area so that people can play. There were quite a lot of people in the community, as some of your listeners will remember, that uh, had been spending the previous years protesting uh, in increasing uh, numbers, the escalating involvement of the United States in Vietnam. Uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated the previous year. Uh, the Doors music uh, predicting a kind of uh, apocalypse playing the end was on the radio. Uh, it was a gloomy time. Nixon had been elected in 68. And so the idea of building a park seemed to be an expression of a politics of joy. It was a way for people to come together and try to declare what it was they were for, not only what it was they were against. The university was irritated, upset, and said, you had no right to this land. A famous leaflet written by Frank Bardicke uh, called Who Owns the Park pointed out that, in fact, this land was land of the Ohlone peoples who had occupied uh, the Bay Area and Berkeley for 10,000 years before Europeans came. And so a great dispute uh, broke out over who had a right to claim this piece of property. And the university said, if you sit on this land, if you uh, dare do anything, we will uh, do everything in our power to prevent you. And so under cover of night uh, on May 15th at about four in the morning, the park was surrounded by dozens, if not hundreds of law enforcement officers. A, a, a cyclone uh, fence was uh, erected and a rally that had been previously scheduled for noon at Sproul Plaza, uh, ostensibly about the Middle East, was quickly turned over to discuss what is to be done about the park. 
5,000 people were in that plaza. I was among them, and all hell broke loose on that day. And what happened? How did it end up? Well, it ended up uh, 60 people hurt badly, 150 shot total, uh, many arrests. Uh, one person died and another person blinded. And some people having wounds today, uh, suffering from the wounds today. Were you personally hit? No, I wasn't. I was shot at, but uh, wasn't hit. And it's important to realize that this represents the first time that law enforcement in the modern period since the Second World War had turned their rifles, in this case, shotguns wielded by the Alameda County uh, Sheriff's Department, among others, loaded first with birdshot, then buckshot. It was the first time they had turned their weapons on white students, presaging a year later the killings at Kent State. This was a major escalation in a major American hamlet, uh, at the site of the first campus of the University of California system, and it was authorized uh, and condoned by Ronald Reagan, then the governor, and it helped catapult him into national prominence, ultimately into the White House, and confirmed his bona fides with his reactionary base. It was an extremely important event. And how long did this last after the events of May 15, 1969? I think 20 days, just 20 days. They allowed it to go and then they came in and fenced it up. My standard reason of why we wanted to start the park is I was doing rallies down at another park downtown and around the war, Vietnam, and that went on for two years. But so what happened is the administration of the city cut that out, and so I live right next to this vacant land that had been, the other reason is the reason they took it away from the people that lived there, they considered them people, like they called them hippies at that time, that weren't, wasn't used too much. And uh, they wanted us out of the area. So they interned, I think it was 53 houses, they destroyed, and the, it was vacant, and then we came on the land. And if you go out there today, what do you see? Well, a park, just many things going on, many people, several different identities. So the university never did anything with it? Nothing. Oh, they, what, when they took it over and fenced it, they made it flat. They made everything gone. And so we started from there after the fence came down. And why is it still being fought over? Well, the university uh, uh, insists that they want to expand the number of students currently enrolled at the University of California, which I think is now up to something on the order of uh, in excess of 30,000. They're contemplating an additional 10,000 students, up to 42,000. And Berkeley, as is so of the rest of the Bay Area, is now suffering a severe housing shortage. So there is a considerable demand for new housing. There is a percentage of uh, Cal students right now that are, are homeless. And so uh, there is a, a great uh, debate over what is to be done. And uh, critics uh, insist the university has other areas in Berkeley and in the East Bay that they own on which housing could be built and that uh, People's Park uh, should be memorialized much as, say, uh, any sort of ground that has been uh, fertilized with the blood of people who fought bitter battles over it. So a great battle has now been joined once again over memory and forgetting. And given the scarcity of housing, what do you think should be done with People's Park? Oh, more of the same. Let it, Leave us alone. Uh, continue with uh, 
they now the university is supplying a uh, welfare worker to help us out find find housing for some of the homeless that are there support us rather than being the negative being against us and and moving doing everything against us for 50 years they have not put any resources into the park with the exception of repression and uh, I believe it's in the news that the university once again is getting ready to take action and there have been some protests out there I think against some trees being felled. Is history about to repeat itself if they start construction? I hope not. I think the university has taken the position, it would appear, that an institution can last a lot longer than human memory or life. And the irony is that an institution of higher learning dedicated to teaching history to its young charges, it should be so dismissive uh, toward the living history it has in its own backyard. And instead of using the struggle over the park as a teaching moment, they seek to denude it of the trees. They cut down 47 trees a few months ago. They began that operation in the dead of night. And I think they're reckoning on the fact that memories fade and the generation that fought for the park is too enfeebled and too bound to its canes and its wheelchairs to mount an effective resistance. That is what they're hoping for. They ho they're hoping that the needs of the present will trump the obligations of the past. And uh, to get back to the book, it's essentially an oral history. How many people did you interview for it? Uh, there are over 112 people that were interviewed uh, for the book. It draws upon contemporaneous statements from scores of people uh, who gave statements at the time. Some of them were published in newspapers uh, of the time, uh, their books that came out, but as well as I, as I say, over a hundred uh, fresh uh, statements and recollections. And it's braided together as, as you rightly say, an oral history. Uh, it's important to emphasize that the book, 356 pages, contains over 220 uh, photographs, many of them never previously published, including uh, the great photographer Ignacio Jan Brown, whose sequence of color photographs of the unfortunate James Rector uh, shot while standing atop a building overlooking the melee that broke out on Bloody Thursday, May 15, 1969, was the one man uh, killed uh, in the uh, fracas. Uh, those pictures in color have never previously uh, been published. Um, and it's also important to emphasize this is the chronicle of the 40 days and 40 nights from the planting and rolling out of the first sod on April 20th to the end of the park saga the, uh, uh, on May 30th, Memorial Day, when th upwards of 30,000 people filled the streets in what was then and still remains the largest protest demonstration in Berkeley's history. And uh, will you, after all these years, Michael, be out there? Will there? Is there any action plan for the 15th? Will you be out there? What's your involvement? Well, we do have an action. We're going to sort of reenact the, when it started by the opening of the fire hydrant at Haston Telegraph on the 15th. You're yeah. going to crack that fire hydrant open? We hope. We hope we do. And that evening, uh, heyday. Books, the publisher of this volume, which, by the way, does not take a position on what should be done with the park today. Again, this is about those 40 days and 40 nights 50 years ago. Nonetheless, we are sponsoring a teach-in at the Brower Center uh, in Berkeley between 7 and 9 p.m. 
on May 15th, which features uh, about 10 speakers, including Mayor Jesse Aragon of, of, of Berkeley, Michael Delacorte, Dan Siegel, the then incoming Associate Student Union president who rather famously uh, remarked, let's go down and take the park. I was in that crowd of 5,000 people listening to those speeches 50 years ago when we trooped down Telegraph Avenue and confronted the police as they confronted us. So we will have a great debate over both the past and the present on that evening. Is People's Park more than just a park? Oh, for sure. It's the history of Berkeley for the last 50 years. It, it represents uh, the working class. It represents the people that are uh, in need in this society. It, uh, it gives us a platform to be able to speak. It gives me a platform to talk about the emancipation of the working class. Uh, it's hell being a worker in this society. It's not anything that anybody, especially when you're a construction worker, that you want to be. It, they don't treat you well. The bosses, it's, the democracy, as we say, ends at the gate. It's a dictatorship. So I'm for uh, exposing that. Uh, the, I'm for the workers, the majority of people in this world, ruling. We should take power rather than an elite 1% that is only in their own interest uh, ruling. Thank you, gentlemen. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. <laughs>